Good morning. It was described by Health Minister Stephen Donnelly as the perfect storm. Flu, Covid and RSV. And our health system buckling under the pressure. On Tuesday, a new high with the INMO recording 931 patients without beds. The highest number since records began in 2006. On Thursday, the News at One brought us the experience of 70-year-old Patricia McCarthy who'd gone to Cork University Hospital with a suspected clot in her lungs and low oxygen levels. I sat on that chair. It's called a hub. They're not called trolleys. It's a new word now for the trolley. I sat in that hub for 57 hours with my coat for a pillow. We're in oxygen bottles, intravenous strips hanging for me for 57 hours. I've watched nurses, they go into work, they don't walk. They're on a trot, they have no space, they're overworked, they're understaffed. I am appalled. That was Cork University Hospital. On Monday, in the spotlight, University Hospital Limerick, who declared a major internal incident due to record high attendances at its emergency department. Joining Claire on Wednesday, Liam O'Brien, who'd gone into UHL on St Stephen's Day and had spent four days on a trolley. Will you tell us a little bit about what that was like, Liam? The first day was the worst because, like, there's, in that zone, I was put into the corner and then I didn't get to meet anyone for hours. And then that night, we'll say, a, a doctor came and she thought it might just be an infection. And I was like... I've had Crohn's for years and I'm usually on top of it, but like flare-ups happen. And I was like, I knew I knew I needed steroids and heavier painkillers. So I was kind of moved into a small little room because of the pain. My temperature went through the roof as well. Um, but I was only in there for about 10 minutes because someone was, did test positive and I was moved out to the the counter of the nurse's station then for Stephen's night. And that's I spent the night at the the counter of the nurse's station. Like, actual rooms and where there's curtains and stuff, you might have, like, 10, but there was, could be 40 to 50 patients just around the place, trolleys, and they wouldn't even have trolleys sometimes, um, just in, on any chair they could get or wheelchairs or whatever. And this is how he described what he'd experienced from his trolley at the nurse's station. It was kind of bedlam there for a long time. You can forget about sleep. Um, but you'd everything from like broken shoulders to dementia to overdoses to fights to everything, you know. They're coming in in droves and like naturally you you don't go to any unless you're in trouble and like every single patient is being told you have thirteen to fifteen hours at least to wait for a doctor. So like frustration builds up and then they're all just taking it out on the nurses and there's no one, like, there's no one higher to be seen there, you know, so everyone's, like, the nurses end up being the face of UHL, like, and they end up just taking everything out on them. So you know, you're saying that you saw some people coming in and firing abuse at the nurses at the nurses' station? Oh, yeah, they were getting us left, right and centre, like... Some of them nearly, literally reduced to tears. Like, I, I was just listening to them talk and, like, and they were like, we, they haven't seen anything like that in a long, long time. We're a long way from the COVID claps. Well, on Tuesday's Morning Ireland, Gavin spoke to Professor Declan Lines, consultant, physician and geriatrician at that hospital in Limerick. 
What are you seeing in Limerick this week? Um, I suppose we're seeing an accentuation of what we've been seeing for the last uh, few years, which is chronic and persistent overcrowding uh, in the emergency department. Uh, very difficult, particularly for patients. The conditions in many instances are inhumane. They're not really appropriate uh, for the evaluation of patients. One of the concerns I would have as a card-carrying clinician is that the initial assessment that one does uh, on a patient in many instances this day and age happens in the emergency department and it just simply isn't possible uh, to carry out an optimal clinical evaluation given the extent of the overcrowding. So it's a very serious situation in, in terms of patient comfort but also in terms of patient uh, safety. And given that pressured environment, the increased possibility of error and missing something vital. Chronic overcrowding now in Limerick Hospital. Will patients, have patients died as a result of emergency overcrowding? I don't know. It's a very hard thing to, um, to, to say. I mean, it's, 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 it's foremost in our thinking every time down in A&E. I think all I can say to you is that if you have 100 patients in the emergency department you can be absolutely guaranteed that five of those will be critically unwell. And the first challenge in the emergency department is to identify the five that are sick as opposed to those that aren't that sick. And I think in an environment where there's significant overcrowding, that process can become very, very tricky and is likely, I think, to lead to mistakes. So I don't think there's any question but the type of environment that we've been dealing with in recent times does lend itself to mistakes. It does lend itself to adverse clinical outcome uh, for, a lot, for some patients. And I think it's, it's a serious, serious concern. On Liveline with Katie, calls from people who had attended A&E, but also from medical staff, weary, frustrated, but not terribly surprised. Here's Edward, who's worked as a consultant for over 30 years. You've heard the emergency overcrowding for some months, but this is different. Well, yeah, can you explain that to me? Because I'm sure people do tune out a little bit. If you haven't had, if you haven't needed to use the health service or, or access the health service in recent times, you might just tune out and say, aren't we always hearing about this January? This is what people, this is what the media go on about every January, the hospital overcrowding. Why is it different? Why, why has there been a step change in it? Because it has reached a tipping point beyond which we can actually manage. So if you're sick and you've got, say, a, a perforated bowel or appendicitis or a surgical condition or you've got a medical condition like chest pain or shortness of breath, you, you have to be examined in a cubicle. Uh, you, you need to lie flat. We as doctors can't actually examine people standing up or in a chair. So, for example, I was on call recently and we had to do a ro rotating system of having the patients outside a cubicle, rotating them in and out, in and out to examine them. My junior staff can't re-examine the patients. It's extremely difficult. So what the Minister for Health needs to do is to recognise that there is a major threat to the well-being of the health of Irish people, particularly the elderly. And a similar tone from Dr Mohammed, who'd worked in emergency care, but left to set up his own practice. 15 years working in, uh, in being trained and working in public health system in Ireland, I, I have seen this crisis play out over and over again every winter. We have struggled with spaces, we have struggled with staff, 
uh, and there are big statements made everywhere. We come onto the media and we talk about it, but unfortunately, there is no ground change that's happening uh, um, uh, on the ground. And and one big reason is uh, 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 I don't think so. We have lack of resources. It's the wrong allocation of resources. As a result of which, we actually lose a lot of resources. And in his view, resources mean people, the doctors and nurses and general medical staff, who seem to be leaving in their droves. You can double the size of uh, every hospital today. You're still not going to solve the crisis of uh, waiting times, elective procedures, referrals for OGD or uh, colonoscopies. You can double the size of the whole agency tonight. It's about how you treat and retain your staff. It's your own article on RTE that Ireland trains around 750 doctors every year, out of which 60% leave the country. Yeah. This, this is a national emergency in itself. If you want to address this at a root cause level as to what's driving them away, and, and, and what's gazing is the silence at the part of the top brass, whether it's the hospital management or whether it's Department of Health or HSC, nobody wants to talk about it. This is a national emergency. From Liveline. With Claire, Letterkenny nurse Sarah Marr spoke about the unrelenting stress of her job in the emergency department. I was rostered 8 to 4 Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday of this week. On Tuesday I got away at 9, Wednesday it was 10 o'clock and then last night was 9 o'clock again. So why is that? Why can't you leave at your appointed time? Um, It's a mixture of reasons at the moment. Um, We're currently working very short staffed like every other emergency department in the hospital. You'll have seen this morning that the sick leave um, rates at the moment are quite high because of the staff being so burnt out and with the viruses that are going around at the moment. On top of that, then we have a skill mix issue to consider. So we have certain nurses who have certain clinical skills and we require a set number of those nurses on any given shift. We've had a huge influx of staff over the last year or two years, but we've struggled to train those staff in the time that we, time frames we would normally do it because of the amount of staff and because of the workloads that we're experiencing. So when it comes to the end of your shift, you just can't go? No. If I hadn't stayed until 10 o'clock on Wednesday, there was nobody available to triage can that you, day. Can you explain to us what it's like in that emergency department every day? It's heartbreaking. Coming on to shift your face, you know you're going in to face anything up to 30 admitted patients plus any additional patients that have been waiting to be seen. So it's not unusual at the moment to walk into our department to find 40 or 50 patients in the department. We only have 12 cubicles. You are walking into an area that is full of patients sitting on chairs, patients sitting in wheelchairs, um, standing, sitting on the floor at times. You're trying to manoeuvre your way around. You're trying to determine who is going to be suitable to be moved for the next emergency that comes through the door because you have nowhere to put them. You're literally just, it's a shuffling game. You're moving from A to B to A to B to try and create space. Mm -hmm. You're also then facing into justifiably upset and angry patients and relatives at the conditions that they're being treated in. Um, And unfortunately, we're bearing the brunt of that because we're the the faces that they see. Well, on Wednesday's News at One, Health Minister Stephen Donnelly with Brian.
What those patients, their families and indeed the, the frontline staff want to hear from you is your plans, your immediate plans to try to deal with this very immediate crisis. Now, it wasn't unanticipated. Um, you were talking about measures being put in place before Christmas. You, uh, you cleared more overtime payments, the recruitment of agency staff, having consultants on duty at weekends and, and in the evenings getting beds from private hospitals. Has that plan simply failed? Well, this is something that we've been working on, not just through this year. So as you referenced, we had a winter plan this year. That plan is being implemented. It's a very comprehensive plan. But we've been working on this now for several years because we know that patients on trolleys is something that we have seen for many, many mm -hmm. years. And we know from our healthcare workers why that is. They have said to us, we need more beds. We need more healthcare professionals. We need more diagnostics. We need more community-based resources. And over the last three years, we've put in place record levels of beds in hospitals, in the community, diagnostics. We've added over 16,000 extra healthcare professionals and we're going to continue and to, we have record, to do that. And we have record numbers, Minister, on trolleys. We do, Brian. And, and this is something we, we were warning about for several months. We watched what happened in the Southern Hemisphere. It's being experienced here. It's being experienced right across Europe. So mm. the best resourced healthcare systems in Europe, the best run healthcare systems in Europe uh, are experiencing very similar strains and stresses in emergency departments that we yeah. are. And it's because of this per, uh, perfect storm. We have a combination of a very significant burden of COVID, mm -hmm. a flu wave that has hit heavier yeah, and harder I, than normal. I think, and, I think and at this stage, as I, think, well. I think at this stage, the, 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 the context of this is pretty well understood. But let's take a couple of aspects. On Thursday, a briefing from the interim CEO of the HSE, Stephen Mulvaney, saying that they were putting an entire system response in place to address the crisis, including asking medical staff to work weekends. He spoke to Mary on Morning Ireland yesterday as he started to visit hospitals around the country to assess what needed to be done. Main purposes is to to be on the ground and to understand directly from staff and manager, managers and clinicians what's happening, to be visible and offer support, and in some cases we can take away some items to try and problems to resolve nationally, you know, issues we can clarify. So it's part of our kind of a whole system response to what, as you said, is it's a clear and present patient safety danger. And this week, while well, it's been the worst week um, on record, we can't be at all certain that it won't get worse before it gets better. And that's why we're taking all the steps that we are in order to avoid that as much as possible and manage it uh, when it's not possible to do that. Worse before it gets better. Back in a bit. Welcome back. All this week, entirely predictable, but always alluring. New year, new you. The life upgrade, new and improved everything. Nettle soup, mmm. Mindfulness, coming out our eyeballs. And with Cormac and Sarah, the dopamine diet, lovely on a spud. But first, a definition, courtesy of Professor of Psychiatry at Trinity College, Brendan Kelly. Dopamine is one of 100 chemicals in our brains that, that really make our brains work. And what we need to understand is just how complex and amazing our brains are. So right now, Cormac, your brain has 86 billion brain cells working away up there. And each one of them, each of those 86 billion nerve cells in your brain has about 10,000 connections to other brain cells. And they're sending back and forth around 100 different chemicals of which one is dopamine. 
So fundamentally, our brains are incredibly complex, like a vast, almost infinite symphony orchestra with hundreds and thousands and trillions of connections. So to ascribe any feeling to a single chemical like dopamine is simplifying beyond description. But, but, but what about then this newfangled diet? Have you heard of the, the low dopamine morning trend? Yes, I certainly have. And I've heard of dopamine fasting, which is this idea that by regulating your dopamine in your brain, you can achieve all kinds of things, all kinds of wellness, happiness, fulfillment in life, and so on. What's interesting is some of the advice that comes from the low dopamine morning movement is actually very good. Not to use our phones immediately upon waking, to delay our coffee, eat a proper breakfast, and start the day thoughtfully rather than in a frenzy. This is all good advice, but it really has absolutely nothing to do with dopamine. But as Sarah pointed out, there is that little rush, that frisson, when we scroll and click. There is something going on, isn't there? You're not imagining it. It is certainly something, and it's something very complex that's going on, involving probably all 100 neurotransmitters in your brain, not just dopamine. I mean, dopamine is involved. We know social connection produces a dopamine, a little burst, tiny little burst of dopamine. But it's the same if you see someone smile at you as it is if you see things on uh, on social media. So, you know, we don't know that it's dopamine, but what we do know is that um, plugging into those devices very early in the morning is is not good. It gives you this short-term burst, which is unhelpful for the day ahead. You sort of start in a hyped-up state. So the advice, and some of it does appear in the low dopamine um, uh, TikToks and so forth, is to start the day more slowly, to avoid the phone, maybe to avoid coffee for a while and do a low-stress task. And that is good advice, as we all instinctively know, and as our mothers told us and as our grandmothers told us as well. But then Sarah going for best in class ahead of the research or, as we'll hear, the pseudoscience. You know, I wasn't actually that surprised about the, the phone uh, advice because we've heard so much of that, I think, over the last couple of years. I, I still don't really take the advice, but I've heard it and I do try to take it. The protein-rich breakfast. I, I never yeah. heard that. But what, what's so good about that? I, as, as it happens, I do take a protein-rich breakfast, but I didn't know I was doing that but for any good reasons. But are to avoid a protein-rich or ta- breakfast? Or take one. No, you, we should. We should take. We should eat a high protein breakfast. We okay. should get some protein in there to give us some proper energy for the day. And it's interesting, Sarah, that you actually do this. You've evolved into a way of doing this without the need for a sort of a pseudo scientific explanation for it or a <laughs> sort of a made up fake science rationale. You just know it's the right thing to do, and therefore you do it. And your point about the phone is interesting. You know you shouldn't go at it too yeah. early, and yet you do. So the, I blame my job, Brendan. Is that okay? That's perfectly fine. Thanks. But if we can move on from the fake explanations for a quick minute, <laughs> you, can still, you can still structure your morning, you know, in such a way. Yeah. So maybe by keeping the phone away from the bedroom, trying to keep it out of the bedroom to at least delay it till you go downstairs and making small structural adjustments can just delay that moment and give you that little bit more control before you plunge into the complexities of your day. Professor Brendan Kelly on Drive Time. And as we straighten up in all kinds of ways, is it time for a break from this? Loaded, twisted, full, scuttered, stoches, balloons, locked, langered, mouldy, polluted, fluted, plastered, ossified, gi, demented, buckled, wasted, parasitic, legless, hammered, banjoed, mangled, pissed, trolled, sloshed. 
Park Brannock from Bowman on Sunday, you would almost welcome a bit of dry January. But for Claire Fulham, on Instagram known as Claire Balding, the drink really had to be knocked on the head. She realised she had a serious problem and quit. Mammy, wine o'clock, no more. And as she told Ray, she is flying. I've had the best two years of my life. I've way more money. I'm paying the bloody electricity and everything else like everyone else is. But the joy, and it's like you've just woken up. You've just woken up. You've just been a new life, a new birth. It's crazy, you know? Like live music sounds better. Nature looks better. <laughs> Everything's better. So I don't know where alcohol gets off pretending it's our friend because some people, some people's friends, okay? But I know more problem drinkers than I do normal drinkers. And so do us all. Mm. You know, uh, but there is this thing, this image, and I don't know if you share it, that there is a fear. There's mm-hmm. a constant fear of going back on the beer. Yeah. Is does that exist for you? Um, no. 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 Um, and it never has actually. Once I made that decision, I was quite clear with myself. Now, do I think that I'll never drink again? No, I don't have that confidence in myself right. because, you know, the addict inside you will always try and rule that part of your life if if you're addicted. Um. But I will sure as hell do everything in my power not to get to that point, you know. Mm. But you spoke about there this clarity that I have now. Like I'm like a new a new person completely, you know. I think quicker. I'm 15 years younger in my head. I act like a teenager again. Like so, you know. I I my life is better. Quite the advertisement. That is Claire Fulham with Ray. And on the work front, how to stop those feelings of dread and anxiety that come from deadlines and stress the Sunday night at Glen Rose. Here's neuroscientist and psychologist Dr Sabina Brennan with Philip. Those Sunday scaries can be a big thing for people. And I, I think they can kind of even be bigger after a break of the holidays that we've had and one of the best ways to to address those scaries is to prioritize sleep because they often kind of hit you the night before you know we've just been offered for whatever it is 10 days uh we've been staying up late sleeping in late eating lots of rich food probably drinking alcohol um all things that kind of interfere with your sleep routine suddenly then you're facing back to reality and it can kind of be scary. So So all the more reason to maintain good work practices, I assume, and even if you are still inundated to say, no, work finishes at six o'clock this evening and I'm not going to keep on answering those emails afterwards. Absolutely, and I think that's become harder and harder, especially with kind of working from home and hybrid working. You know, those boundaries have become harder to keep. So I think probably as a New Year resolution, you know, rather than, you know, unrealistic resolutions that we all stop doing, you know, in February, a good New Year's resolution could be to start the year by actually identifying what those boundaries are, possibly with your, your, your manager or your superior, whatever, you know, look, my working hours are 9 to 5.30. Communicate those boundaries to the rest of your team or to your mm-hmm. customers or anyone you deal with, and then stick to them. If you don't respect your own boundaries, you can't expect anyone else to respect them. And it's not enough just to log off. We need to mentally disengage. And make a point of using your time off for time off um, and really set those boundaries. And those boundaries shouldn't just be limited to actually doing work. They should be limited to actually thinking about work. You should and be doing something else with of, your brain and your time, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. that should help with the, those Sunday night scaries. You know, if you start thinking about work on Sunday, go, I'll be in work on Monday. 
that's when I'll think about work. And a good thing to do is, you know, actually make Sunday a more active day, a day where you engage all your senses and you do things and actually take exercise because that will induce sleep rather than that tossing get and turning after a lazy day. Get out into nature, get out into the outdoors. It is absolutely restorative. Doctor. And staying with the joys of nature, Ryan, parsing the papers, brought us this and have a listen to the trajectory of the eyebrow for this one. Nature is to be prescribed by health professionals for the first time. How do you prescribe nature? So they're saying that nature is great for our health. Okay, well, that doesn't seem like a big leap of the imagination. But they're trying this trial, which would include a leaflet and a calendar of ideas to enable people to connect with nature, okay, and boost their health and well-being. Said there was growing evidence indicating that the physical and mental health benefits of connecting with nature, which included helping to reduce stress and fatigue and anxiety and depression. Yeah, I call it walking. Um, And uh, (laughs) I've been doing it for you. No, no, I'm not trying to belittle those things, but I am saying... Do we have to be prescribed a walk? And if you do, well, okay. That's, well, come on, out you go. And it's beautiful out there. But he's not quite buying the prescription. But it does bring us to murmurations. The beautiful offering on Sunday from Ella McSweeney. A half hour of pure wonder. When I was 13, I remember being out on the lake with um, Jimmy Furio, a beautiful man. He was a boat builder, and we were out on Loch Cree one evening. And we were coming back into the, into the bay, and I could see this formation in the sky. And I was wondering, what's this swirling up in the air and back down and around? And the gathering seemed to be getting bigger and bigger, and... I says to Jimmy, what's that? What's happening there? Oh, that's why the starlings, they're doing their lovely flight now, he says. That's a murmuration, he says. It's magical. Not one wing touching the other. It's just unbelievable. Murmuration. A sublime word that describes flocks of starlings wheeling, twisting and turning like acrobats in the cold winter sky. Up to a million birds moving as one organism, swooping and surging in unison. Nature's great ballet in the sky. Murmurations from Ella McSweeney, well worth a listen back. Back in a bit. Welcome back. It was at a public meeting in Gort on Wednesday night that bags of excrement were thrown at two TDs, Fianna Fáil's Anne Rabbit and Fine Gael's Ciarán Cannon. Roundly condemned as a new law, why would you do such a thing? A question Katie put to Joe Baldwin, the man with the bags. When did you get this idea to do what you did? When did it come to you? That evening it came to me. 
just that evening. I so said, like, it just, I said to myself, right, I di- didn't bring that in there to hurt them. I, ju- I thrown it like, I didn't throw it like, wind back my hand like a baseball player and fire at them. What I said to them was, I said, there are two ministers. Are they so, going t- to put t- up with... Okay, I, I will get that. I just want to get to what you actually did because people are, there's been a few yeah. kind of different versions of it floating around. So let's just get into what exactly, what kind of bags were you talking about? Two small little clear bags with zip seal and they were sealed tight and it was dry manure that was inside them. It was dry manure. You went out, you, you have yeah. a farm yourself, you went out to your own backyard to get it, did you? Backyard, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and and, and you're 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 anxious to to point out that it was dry manure, not not wet. There was no harm. No one got dirty or anything. But can I put you what Anne Rabbit has said? She said uh, she was asked if she feared for her own personal safety. She said, I certainly did when I was leaving the room that night. Uh, she said uh, the person, she does say that, she, she she says that the person responsible was not removed from the event. She said, at the end of the day, whatever way you look at it, a person at a meeting last night assaulted two public government representatives representing their constituents who were there in good faith. Like she had something thrown at her. She had no way of knowing, Joe, what was in that bag or what your intent was or, you know, what you were about. I said, Can you I imagine said having something mic- thrown at you in those mic- circumstances? I said on the microphone, I said on the microphone and I went out to Kieran Cannon first. Kieran Cannon was first. She's seen what I turned to Kieran Cannon. I said, if you're going to bring shit into this town, she was the language, here is some shit for you and I had it in the bag. That's exactly. Now, they didn't know that that was as you say yourself, cow dung that you put. They didn't know yes, what look, it was in, exactly whoever, what like, kind of excrement was in that bag, to be fair. and they, they It was green. It was absolute green cow dung. It was like whoever even in the papers the following day decided to put up that was human excrement was absolute. That was just file. Papers, some parts of the media, TV are just blowing this out of proportion. But Katie wondered with the benefit of time and perhaps a bit of perspective, any regrets? You've had it... 24 hours and you've seen the backlash you've seen what people out there have been saying about it in retrospect Joe would you not say maybe that wasn't the way to go to make my point but at the end of the day what do you do to make your point because the politicians aren't listening so you you still stand over what you did is that what you're saying to me yes unrepentant in fact he believed comments on social media proved that many were right behind him there's 90% of the comments are saying we shouldn't take any more crap from politicians. Well, there's a difference between not taking any more crap from politicians and doing what you did, throwing a, a missile, basically, they weren't to know what was in it, at politicians who were attending a public meeting in good faith. Well... I mean, you're, you're, you're fa- with, can I just say, Joe, can I just say, you, you, your father, and obviously he was a very committed community worker and I think actually stood for politics at one stage. How would you like if anyone did that to him? Like, what would you feel about that? It wouldn't happen in the first place because if he was in a position that they're in, he'd do something about something. Would you? These two TDs here in power and they're standing up, voting every day with a government and that's my problem and that's why I... Well, done the, the type the, of process that the, I done. The thing is, Joe, they were elected by, by if not by yourself, if you didn't vote for them, enough people in your constituency voted, uh, and that's why they are where they are. Would, the would you think of standing yourself? I don't think the vote. I don't. I think politics is a dirty game. It's absolute dirt. It's filth. Look every day in their access, and you see them just shouting and flinging stuff over and back at one another. So what's the answer then? But Joe, what's the answer then? If you if you want, you want. 
go into, you say politics in itself is dirty. You don't like the politicians that are elected. How, 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 do, you, how do you change things? How do you make things better? The ordinary, decent working people need to just stand back and look and see who they're voting for. And while he said he wouldn't smear all politicians, would he apologise to the two TDs involved? I'll give you one last chance. Would you say that you didn't want to intimidate anyone? That you Would you apologise to Anne Rabbit for I, that? I didn't set out to intimidate anyone. But the stance I took, I'm not going to apologise for it until they apologise for not providing a proper service as politicians to our area. And that's my finish on it. From Liveline yesterday, the matter is now in the hands of the Gardaí. How to follow that one? Maybe with a trip far, far away to space. With the Darcy, one woman with one hell of a proposal. He kind of looked back at me and just said, will you come to space? And it felt like um, the most bizarre proposal I've ever received. Actually, the only proposal I've ever received, I should clarify. (laughs) (laughs) But what a proposal. Dear listener, she said yes. That was Rhiannon Adam, the Cork-born woman who, by the end of this year, hopes to make history by becoming the first Irish person in space. It's between six and eight days, Um, so seven days I'm going for as a nice happy medium. Um, So yeah, it's literally leaving Earth and um, going on a lunar orbital mission around the moon and then coming back to Earth, we hope. (laughs) So you would be going to the dark side of the moon? Exactly. Whoa. Pink Floyd would be very proud. Yes, yes. And I, I've just reading there, you're, the, the, the starship is going to be within 200 metres of the lunar surface. Yeah. Oh. I know, oh, I can oh, almost oh, touch oh. it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> spectacular. This is spectacular. This is so exciting. I'm so excited for you. Watch him. He'll be stone away yet. And you could see why. Adams is one of eight crew going to space as part of the Dear Moon Lunar Tourism and Art Project. Take that at two weeks in Lanzarote. And this is how it all came about. The, the, the figures are astronomical. How many people applied for this? <laughs> yeah, like a million people. I should, have, I should have played the lottery, but in a way I'm kind of glad <laughs> I didn't because maybe that would have used up my like, luck. Yeah. <laughs> and did you realise that? Or you sound like one of those people who sort of stumbled into this, which is annoying, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> it's annoying for everyone else, yes, but kind yes, of good yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I stumble around most most places, to be fair. Um, that's how I find most things in life. Don't put too much pressure on yourself and you end up kind of bumping into opportunities. That's what I always think. Um, yeah, like I really didn't have any clue about the number of people applying for this. Um, but, you know, when I threw in my application, it was a website. It was an open form, like a, almost like Google Docs. So I didn't really think in any great detail you know, about ever actually coming to the point that I'm at now where it's real. Mm. <laughs> and all of this courtesy of billionaire Yusaku Mizawa, or MZ, as those in the know like to call him. Um, so MZ is, well, he's a Japanese billionaire and entrepreneur, and um, he is very passionate about art, and he has a massive art collection. And he decided that instead of taking scientists who spend, um, well, I suppose up until now, they've been the kind of dominating factor in space mm. ex- exploration, he's decided to take a bunch of artists and creatives to be able to translate the experience of going to space for everyday people. So... That's where we come in. What a brilliant idea. I mean, it's kind of groundbreaking, I think, um, just in terms of being able to think differently about 
science. Mm. Um, I think it's really important sometimes. So, so there's 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 you. There's an Indian actor. There's a Korean rapper, or is there a pop singer? Yeah, singer. Yeah. And then there's so so you're there as a photographer. Are you? Is that your main? I am skill. Yeah, I'm a photographer, but not in a traditional sense. As in, I'm not. Um, I don't shoot weddings. I don't really shoot products. You know, right, yeah, I'm not yeah. I'm not the kind yes, of photographer okay. that you generally think of. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and as she told Ray, her childhood gave her a unique preparation for this adventure. At the age of seven, her parents took a notion to buy a boat and sail the world. So you were leaving um, uh, probably a small national school yeah. in, in West Cork um, and, yep. and you were taken to the sea, just you and two adults, so no other siblings. Nope. Uh, Wow. How long did you do that? How many years? Um, so I came back um, to, well, I came to the UK when I was a teenager. So, yeah, it was the best part of my, best part of my life. Your really. formative then, years, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, 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 that makes you something, doesn't it? Well, it's a weird, I mean, in some, in some ways, an adult, I can kind of look back on it as a sort of positive in some senses. But, of course, it's brought out many negative traits like I'm very good at saying goodbye to people um, because you make friends quickly and Sorry, then you're I good at saying laugh, leave, leaving but, but, it, but it's worked out well yeah. for space <laughs> um, I'm good in an enclosed environment should we put it that way yeah. um, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable with other people's bodily functions at close quarters <laughs> right. these are all positives yes. <laughs> you know exactly when I think about it now yeah. um, and what are your memories you know, what are your memories of, of a seven year old Leaving, you know, your friends um, and the place that you knew and setting off uh, on the Atlantic Ocean. I mean, to me, I, I mean, I was broken hearted leaving Ireland, to be honest. Um, my best friend, Lee, like I used to practice his name in handwriting every day and I would write in postcards from wherever we stopped. And, you know, I never wanted to leave Ireland. Um, yeah, it was it was a real struggle for me. And I remember us leaving because we had these Ballon D Crusaders uh, sweatshirts yeah. that um, a friend of ours had made. And it just didn't feel real with beginners symbols on the front. And uh, off we went on the boat. What an adventure. And if she makes it up into space, she will be flying flags both Irish and rainbow, something she is very proud of. And the world will be watching her as she watches the moon. Trippy. Part of me kind of thinks, I can't believe it's me. And, you know, little old me, this seems completely ridiculous. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I think my biggest, I suppose, fear about it is is that I'll come back to Earth and nothing will ever feel the same again. Mm. Or that I will feel dissatisfied in some way or that, you know, it'll be kind of I, I'll have completed life you know what will I do next there's there's a bit of a fear of that and there's also a fear I suppose of having outed myself now to millions of people that I have lost my anonymity slightly and my ability to go to lots of places in the world that maybe I would have been interested in traveling to or visiting and now because I'm sort of sort of so out and proud with my identity that perhaps um that's impacting on that um yeah, and so there's like a life change associated with it, which, which like, of course, I'm ex- I'm excited about the space element, but I'm worried about the human element, you know. Yeah, well, well, please, please, please come back and talk to us after it happens, and and we'll find out if it has changed you. It will, but uh, <laughs> I, I think it's going to be a very positive experience. Um, I'm sort of jealous. Uh, Rhiannon and Adam, uh, definitely double check that shuttle, Ray, with Rhiannon and Adam putting all our plans for 2023 into perspective. On a more prosaic level, films to look forward to in the year ahead when we are sitting on our bottoms here on Earth. 
Here's Gwony Humphreys on Drive Time with this top tip. But you really can't have enough of cocaine bear. A lot of cocaine was lost. I need you to go and get it. The bear, it f***ing did cocaine. A bear did cocaine. <laughs> Uh, so the entire plot of this movie, Grania, is the bear did cocaine. Pretty much, pretty much. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think that's probably enough for me. You <laughs> yeah, know, okay. in, a, in a sense. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need Fair some point. long synopsis. You know. Um, what else did you want the bear to do, uh, Sarah? <laughs> It's just a whole movie. But no, it looks, I mean, the the trailer is spectacular. It was filmed in Ireland. Ray Liott is in it. What's not to love? Maybe the key to the entire year. Manage your expectations and don't feed cocaine to bears or indeed yourself. With Ryan, another proposal, this time from Ronan Conway and the invitation to go dark dancing. Yes, lights out, good tunes played at volume and stimulant free. Ryan Tuberty though, not convinced. People uh, come and dance after work, after college and they're home and all in time for the nine o'clock news. The, the utterly un- <laughs> un- unimaginative part of me is going, well, at least I get back for the news. But I, I suppose, uh, but why? Yeah. I mean, no, I can't even, I, I can't even come uh, up with it. Uh, I'll, I'll <laughs> I was trying to come up with something. Well, I can understand that. And then I went, no, I can't. Not for a moment. I'll do the talk. Please. <laughs> Thank God. I have my coffee here. Uh, the floor is yours. Enjoy it. Um, so, essentially, I'll tell you another story. But I was at a wedding uh, six years ago in Clare, I believe it was. And just after the dinner, the wedding band started to play. And this, uh, like, four-year-old boy started wandering towards the dance floor. And he was, like, swinging and swaying his body. <laughs> like, And... Uh, it was lovely to see and the music kept going and he just kept dancing and he just kind of cut loose. Yeah. And in my mind, I was like, go on, you little legend, you know, <laughs> and everyone was. And, um, you know, there's a big crowd of people cheering him and all of this. And, uh, you know, two hours later, sure enough, the dinner finishes and the adults have a few drinks in them and they come onto the yeah. dance floor, including myself. And... The thing about it is, you know, like Did we, they become the four year olds. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, we all, we all, like, we all have a little dancer and our little mover in us. But like years of conditioning or yeah. thinking we can't dance or that's not the right way you to dance or yeah, you yeah. shouldn't yeah. or maybe someone laughed at you in school when you dance and you just don't do it anymore. So it's like the point of soda bread boxes. Yeah, it's actually just going and having a bit of a move, getting out of your head and into your body. Yeah. So, so that's nice to see. All right, okay, I'm I'm yeah. I'm good with that. I don't think yeah. I'd do it, but I've seen you dance on the toy shop, <laughs> and I, I know you have some moves. So free pass on the door. Well, I. <laughs> The sound of nervous laughter. Well, that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. And we will have that dance. 